welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry. And to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business, and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies, either past or present. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another DIFF podcast. And today I am joined by two legends of our industry, or legends, as they have both been called in the past and may be called again. Phil Rickards, former head of BM, director and chairperson of IMLA, and current chairperson of the giant intermediary London and Country, left school with six O-levels, three of which he had to retake, but managed to start as a junior clerk at the Commercial Bank of Wales part of a young workers scheme, gaining other qualifications as he progressed to Pearl, TSB and joined Birmingham and Midchurch Building Society in 1993 as a financial advisor. On the setup of BM in 1999, he moved into the intermediary space and has never looked back. Also joining us is Kevin Roberts. Kevin is currently director of LNG Mortgage Club. This gives him responsibility for arguably the biggest distributor in the UK, and brings with it surveying and technology responsibilities. Kevin left school with seven O-levels, but like Phil, he had to resit three. He also got three, according to him, desperately average A-levels that allowed him to join Royal London ostensibly as a motor underwriter, but in reality, he spent many months inputting policies and writing cover notes. He eventually overcame the non-graduate moniker and became a chartered insurer and went on to get an MBA from Lancaster University. He joined LNG in 2012 and moved into mortgages in 2018. They are here representing unquestionably the most powerful cohort of people in this country and nearly all countries in the Western Hemisphere and some beyond, white men. Now, according to the Journal of Accountancy, 88.8% of CEOs, CFOs, and COOs of top companies report as Caucasian, and 88.1% of them are male. In fact, the percentage of Fortune 500 companies who had white male CEOs marginally increased between 2019 and 2021. But we are here to discuss feelings and actions and not facts. So let's start with privilege. Now, all three of us are privileged because we are, to varying degrees, able-bodied and male. I have the privilege of having gone to university, but you guys have the privilege of being white. That means you can walk into most places in this country without a second thought. So before BLM and me do, were you aware of this privilege? Had you ever given any thoughts of your status to society. Thanks for the kind introduction, Barrett. In terms of feeling privileged, I I can honestly say I never really felt privileged. I definitely wasn't aware of my status. And this might just be me and my upbringing. You know, going back to my childhood, had a very modest upbringing, 
not quite the full-on council house experience, but certainly one street away. I went to a pretty rough, comprehensive school, you know, as you've alluded to. I had to ring my mother to say I'd failed most of my O-levels. I did ring her from the pub, which wasn't a good move. Went back to finish off those O-levels, managed to get another three. My sister and I, growing up, didn't have a lot and certainly got our dad to thank for our work ethic. You know, he was the son of a, a coal miner. He worked for the Royal College of Nursing in the records office and worked as hard as he possibly could to give us everything he could. And I guess for me, it's probably that modest background and upbringing that's meant I've never really understood or felt privileged until recent times. And certainly, you know, even today, not really aware of my status when it comes to the industry that I've represented for so long. And Kevin, how about you? Because, you know, we'll get on to your amazing involvement in matters of DNI in our industry. But again, before then, can you recall feeling or even thinking that you had a status that was so much better than many, many other people? Absolutely not, Barra. I've got a sort of a history that very much mirrors Phil in terms of grew up in a place called Cannock, which gave you a Midlands accent. I grew up in the less desirable side of, of Cannock, I suppose, without doing it a disservice, just after the mines had closed. My dad had three jobs. You know, I had high-tech trainers when I went to school, not any of the bigger brands, etc. And, and just had a tremendous work ethic. Uh, really lucky, a loving home. I, I had a great childhood, if that makes sense, but never, never felt privileged at all, no. Just knew that I had to work hard. I don't think you look around you. I just think you look forward, don't you? You know, and I saw people with perceived more privilege than me that um, went to private educated or went to university and that kind of stuff and made you a striver. So I never, unfortunately, thought to stop and look around me and look at the privilege I had. I think you're always looking at what you don't have. And that, that's been a lesson that, that I've learned more recently. But no, I, I didn't feel privileged at all, Barrett. That's not unusual. And now there is greater awareness of the whole idea of privilege and knowing that you can walk into most places. And I think We'll get to Phil's story about the empathy of knowing what it's like not to be comfortable walking in somewhere later. But, you know, simple fact that both your parents remained married adds an element of privilege to your upbringing that, again, some people don't have. And indeed, the fact that you both are heterosexual also adds to an element of social privilege. So let's get on to then post Black Lives Matter and Me Too 2020, when suddenly everything seemed to be put into focus about inequalities and unfairness. And I think we started writing about these sort of things in Mortgage Solutions. It was all over the press. It was all over social media and the mainstream media. How did that change your perception of the world and yourself? I'm probably going to look back a little bit further in time, Barrett, but not too far in time. So 12 years ago, uh, Lisa and I became grandparents. I know that's really hard to believe, but before you say it, we do start young in Wales. And I think it's having a grandson who I've become incredibly close to that's helped start to change my thinking latterly. So he doesn't see the differences in colour. He doesn't see disability. He doesn't see sexual preference. Everybody's the same as far as he's concerned. And having become you know, really close to him and listened to him talk about his experiences in his little life, it sort of gives me hope that the younger generation that's coming up, we're in good hands in that respect. And I know you've touched on it. I guess I've never really been aware of it because even back to my early 20s, and through my 20s, 
I played basketball semi-professionally, traveled all over the UK, played in the English National League. And I played against guys in my position as a short guy, you know, me as six foot one, played against guys, black guys in particular, who were much quicker than me, much better than me. And I had to work really, really hard just to keep up with those guys. So I always had the hugest amount of respect for black people from a sporting perspective in particular. And my sporting hero, without doubt, bar none, is Michael Jordan. So Michael Jordan at six foot seven, being able to do the things that he was able to do physically and mentally is outstanding. Uh, I played against many white guys that were six foot seven that could barely bend down to tie their shoelaces up, never mind do the things that Jordan could do. So I guess my journey has been slightly different in that I've never really felt aware of a lot of this stuff and, and I probably blocked myself out to it wrongly. And certainly latterly now, I'm much more aware of the situation. You tell the story of actually having played basketball in the city of London in a predominantly black environment. Did that in any way make you feel ill at ease, make you at least think this is different? Because that's how most people of colour have to think in many, many different places that they actually go into. Whereas, as I said before, white men in particular never have to give a second thought often to walking into anywhere in this country. Yeah, two trips every year without doubt stick in my mind. And they were trips to Brixton and Tower Hamlets, who were not only excellent basketball teams at the top of the English National League, but really intimidating places to go. And the one sports centre in particular actually had nets across all of the stairwells on the various floors. I think there were three or four floors. And in my mind, this was to stop me getting thrown off at some point during my visit to the sports centre. And there was one game in particular when a big black guy, definitely huge black guy, sat behind our bench, politely suggested that we should return home to Wales to do what we do best, the sheep. And, you know, that feeling that you describe, without doubt, existed on numerous occasions that, that I travelled the UK playing basketball, but didn't really affect me adversely. It just kind of brought it home to me that this is a very different environment. So this sort of like brings us back to the question that we can't actually execute change without the people in charge being actively involved. So why do you now, both of you, feel that you should actually care about diversity and inclusivity? And what would you say to someone who felt that this just didn't matter to him, which I suppose is how both of you felt at some point, but hopefully don't feel now? So, Kevin, why should it matter? I think it should matter because it's happening to those people around us, some of the stories that happened at some of our industry events and dinners is wholly unacceptable. You know, I don't leave an industry dinner, for example, at the end of the night and worry about getting a taxi, but ladies do. You know, I don't worry about whether I sit next to a speaker because I've got a normal hearing, but some people do. And I think we, we don't see it. And we've got to understand that everyone around us, I suppose, has their own lack of a privilege, if that makes sense. Many of us do have a privilege, but I think we talk about imposter syndrome. I think we're all worried about what we don't have and what we're striving towards and that kind of stuff. And, and you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's really important that we stop and realise what we do have and the fact that others don't have that, as well as being good for business. I mean, I, I love the fact that we've got, you know, certainly a, a great gender diversity we need to improve in other aspects but it brings so much more to a business than some of the all-male ego-led testosterone driven teams I've been on where you care more about one-upmanship than the good of the business or even the customers 
But it's not only can it help your business, but it's just common decency. I've got a daughter and a son. It's nice to think that we can bring them up in a world where they've got more chance of equity going forward. And Phil, you know, again, from your perspective, what would you say to somebody who said, yeah, well, it doesn't bother me, so why should I be caring about it? I think just for the sake, Kevin's put that really nicely in terms of the way that our industry is now and, and has been and there's still quite a way to go in terms of improving the way we conduct ourselves as an industry but we're on a nice trajectory and i think some of the stories i've described to you barrett will tell you that i definitely was that person who didn't think i had a problem with any of this you know so why should i care and, and to a degree what's the problem having been in some of those circumstances i've been in myself that that's definitely definitely changed for me and I can honestly say my very basic way of looking at this is it's it's everybody's human rights to be treated equally. And I think, you know, we've all got a duty that where we spot somebody not being treated equally to look out for them and to, to try and put a stop to it and to try and educate people. And if I'm being brutally honest, that's the bit I still struggle with a little bit. I still don't feel like I'm totally educated enough on this topic to be able to have those really, really difficult and challenging conversations with people. But I'm trying, and that's an honest answer. Obviously, there's lots of good Div podcasts that you can listen to that will actually help. So I think we're in agreement that white men are essential in instigating, accelerating, and delivering meaningful DNI outcomes in our industry. You both have or had or have amazing female bosses right, in the awesome Ali Crosley and the eternally enthusiastic Esther Dextra. Has that made a difference to your perspective? Have they widened your viewpoint, not just because they're excellent managers, which they are, but because they're, they're female managers and have brought different perspectives? Kevin, it's your chance to be nice to Ali now. Ali knows what I think of her. She's a fabulous leader, but she's also a fabulous person. It sort of looks after you. I think what Ali brings is, and what she's great is, you know, there's no ego, there's no testosterone. It's very fact-led feelings. It's wonderful. Has it changed my perspective? Maybe not. I think, going back to the earlier point, I don't necessarily see it, if that makes sense, but without a doubt, it would have done. And how Ali really drives the initiatives forward and much wider in group, et cetera, is fabulous. So within that, it's great to have such a supporter that when I'm doing this kind of stuff and the work with Amy, Ali's absolutely 100% behind it and gives it maximum support, which is wonderful. And how fantastic is Esther? Well, I'm going to come back to Esther, if I might. Not that I'm not going to answer the question. It's quite interesting. I started my career in 1985 with a female boss so all those years ago. And it was a lady called Glenis Edwards who scared the crap out of me, but was a very powerful and inspiring woman and gave me a really sound grounding at the very start of my career. So certainly had a very good experience very early on in my career with a, a female boss. And then there was Esther, who definitely didn't scare the, the hell out of me. To Kevin's point, she's an incredibly nice human being. And, you know, we're from different backgrounds, different nationalities. But that's kind of helped us get on really, really well. And she's helped me understand the DNI agenda definitely in her later years of working with me. And it's describing some of those experiences at industry dinners and industry functions that Kevin touched on earlier on and her own experience of how that made her feel as a woman who's got to the top of her game. So it's definitely helped me on, on my journey to understanding these issues greater. And to your point, she's a good boss. 
Well, she was a good boss. Indeed. And talking about your new role, Phil, and you're on this podcast, so I thought I might as well ask you, what are your intentions about the all-white male LNC board? Should I put Dom Scott, Sally Laker and Dina Budia on notice for a call? Great question. And nicely timed, actually. So we have very recently, I say very recently, only just appointed two new non-execs to the board. So you're right, it was an all-male, quite senior board. And we've appointed two very successful females from their own fields, a lady called Sue Brown, who ran a really large conveyancing business and helped to sell that business out for a, a substantial sum of money. And a lady called Nicola Wildman, who spent 25 years with the regulator, who joins us as our non-exec and our chair of risk. So not done entirely, Barrett, but the job is well underway of having a more diverse board at London and Country. That is very good news. Now, I didn't even set you up. You didn't, actually, which is not like you. I know. So where we are at the moment, I'm going to ask you a more personal question in a way. So if you were in a pub with a group of white male friends or colleagues, and even if they weren't necessarily sexist or racist or, or, or homophobic or anything, but there were people trivialising the idea or value of diversity and inclusivity, what would your reaction be now that you are more involved, more aware of the issues from a not only an industry perspective, but a societal perspective? So, Kevin, how would you go about tackling that? It needs an awful lot of courage. And sometimes I think I don't have enough. And other times I know I've got more than I had. As white men, we cast a massive shadow. And if we don't tackle it, if we don't do something about it, it sends out the wrong messages. So I do try to tackle it. I have had a number of conversations, but there are some areas that I probably haven't done enough as well. And, and on reflection, next time I'll do more. I alluded to it earlier, but as a white male man, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. I didn't think there was a problem. I didn't open my eyes enough. I was passive. And I hear a lot of people talking around, well, I don't want to say anything because I might say the wrong thing and that kind of stuff. And I've taken the stance now in terms of I'm not an expert and I know I'm going to make some mistakes and I might say the wrong thing or use the wrong terminology or misgender someone or something along those lines. And I'm going to make mistakes, but that shouldn't stop me from not doing anything and not saying anything. So I've taken the stance now is I'm just going to talk about it. And if I say the wrong word, hopefully it's coming with the right intention and that will come with an element of acceptance or hopefully even forgiveness because the alternative is if I don't say anything and I don't start talking about it, and I think that's just worse. I think it's worse to be passive and not having the courage to at least try to do something about it in all situations. That's the only way that as white middle-aged men, we're going to make a difference, Barrett. So I hope I've answered your question there. It's really hard, but we have to start edging on that journey and taking one step forward and then another step and get more confident. So Phil, what would you do? There you are in a Brains pub in Cardiff with the rugby's on, for example, and somebody trivialises the whole idea of DNI. How would you go about making a case for it or calling someone out? So you had to mention the rugby, didn't you, as a start of a 10? But on a more serious note, it's so refreshing to hear Kevin talking like he's just talked because I'm in a very similar camp. I've got an awful lot to learn. And I'm going to come away from the what would I do. I've got a couple of actual examples where recently I've had a go at this. So please indulge me. And they're quite amusing in a way. 
my father-in-law, I nearly lost it recently, was talking about an experience he had with a BT engineer who'd come out to fix his broadband. And in my father-in-law's words, the guy could barely speak English and BT should be hiring British. So I challenged him on it. I didn't do a particularly good job of it, much to Lisa's amusement, but I wasn't standing for that. And also, actually the same weekend, my mother-in-law talking about a recent visit to the doctors where she described an Asian nurse that had come out to see her but she was ever so nice. And I just saw red really and said, well, there's a word in there you don't really need to use. And that's Asian. You just say the nurse was really nice. And neither of them got it. They both put it off as a generational thing. And it's the way they've been brought up. And I just said, that's not an excuse. You know, you need to re-educate yourselves and I'm here to help you out. And, and the conversation ended there quite awkwardly. So I had a go, probably didn't do a brilliant job of it, but I tried. That is fantastic. And actually, there is a big gap between various generations, I think, your grandchild's generation is going to be brought up, hopefully, in a society that has a great deal more awareness of diversity, inclusivity and equity, whether it necessarily unpicks the structures that we've got in place that actually deny access to certain underrepresented groups, that is yet to be seen, but at least there's an awareness there. So if we get to the point of opening up our industry to more and different people, what would you say, Kevin, to somebody who looks at the mortgage industry and feels that they wouldn't inverted commas belong in our industry how would you get them to give it a go that's a really really tough question we're trying to address that with sort of the working in mortgages website from an amy perspective we didn't want just a, a dni website we wanted to expand it to look at working in mortgages for those people within it who are after some support but also those people who want to to look at it so it's very much on our agenda what would i say to those people is it's a wonderful, wonderful industry with so many opportunities and, and really welcoming. I've only been in the mortgage industry five years now and we're really welcomed, but there again, I'm a white male. So maybe it was a lot easier for me. We're trying. And if we just keep recruiting more white, middle-aged, heterosexual men, guess what? We're just going to perpetuate that. So we do need some people. We need some courage from those in it and we need some courage for people that want to come and join us. But come in, look at the website, get involved. We've got a task force ongoing. We're continuing the work, following the viewpoints. There's 30 people that's being put into working groups at the moment to try and help in their own small way, just make it a better place for us to be. It's wonderful to go to industry events now and have people at the beginning talk about how we should behave and have it in programs and that kind of stuff. We won't change unless we get more diversity and we get a much better thinking and we represent the customers that we serve. So please come and give it a go. There are people here that will welcome you, that will be there to support. So please give us a go. Uh, Phil, do you have anything to add to that from a Valley's perspective? Yeah, very similar, Barrett. I mean, the first thing is you don't necessarily need to be highly educated, but if you are highly educated, it will work both ways. You just need to understand people. Our industry is an amazing and it can be a rewarding place for anyone. And I mean anyone that's prepared to put the effort in. We definitely need people from all kinds of backgrounds to join or stay in the industry. And at the end of the day, 
our industry is there to help people. And I think that can be done regardless of your background. I would just say it's a wonderful place to be. And it's certainly given me some wonderful experiences and challenges over the last 30 years. That's great to hear. And I think one of the other things that I would like to suggest to all successful white males, but hopefully you two will understand and champion this, is from the number of podcasts and trailblazer podcasts that I've done, so many people have been given their chance by one person believing in them and recruiting them when they didn't need to be recruited. From everyone from John Phillips all the way to Dev Mali and a variety of people. So allyship is really important. So for the both of you, I think Diff is sponsoring the mentoring activity going on with the Amy website at the moment. But beyond mentoring, I simply think just looking out for people from underrepresented groups that don't already have a network that don't already have friends that are lawyers and surveyors, etc. And just being available to have a word and support or just make yourself available to people is a very valuable thing. And I hopefully you both agree with that. Wholeheartedly. And you mentioned you know, that Diff's really generous sponsorship of the, the mentoring programme that gets launched in a few weeks' time. And at least it gives you a structure and a framework for people to want to mentor, but also be reverse mentored. It would be great to have people aligned so that we can all learn as well. We don't see what we don't see. And I think we all need to stop, open our eyes and look around us, not just worry about what we don't have or whether our ladder is long enough or the size of it. There are other people out there that don't have what we already have. So how can we give some of our rungs to them and give them a step up that I think is really important about it? I think that's nicely put. I know it really unsettled Phil when I'm in any way nice to him, but I did interview in the south of France your ex-boss, the great Mike Jones, and I interviewed him like a football manager. And I said, so when you took over the LBG team, is there any player who you particularly, after you started managing them, you realised that they were indeed a star and not a complete and utter midfield waste of space? And without even a picosecond of thought, he mentioned you, Phil, as the star performer in the team he took over at LBG. And as the two of you are so different, it's an amazing thing to do. And I do also believe in this thing, I don't know if you've heard about it, it's called the curb effect or the drop curb effect. Every time we do something to help a group of people, we will help more than we thought. And the drop curb effect is you start making curbs slope down to help people in wheelchairs and inadvertently you are also helping parents with prams people that are temporarily injured people that have got prosthetic limbs etc etc so just by doing one good thing for one group of people often means that you simply by doing it you're widening the benefit that you're offering and i think that's really important i think you're spot on about the two things there firstly you're definitely very rarely nice to me and secondly mike and i could not have been from more different backgrounds and when I first sat down with my very first pint of beer and described my background, you could see him thinking, oh dear, what have I got here? But very quickly forged a brilliant working relationship and understanding. So you're right, it can be done. Indeed. And indeed it should be done. And well done, the both of you. So I want to just see how far your journey has gone, Kevin. And I want to ask you what you now think of the three degrees. Just for context, Kevin is a West Brom fan. And the three degrees was the 
name given to three absolutely superb black footballers that blossomed in West Brom in the 70s, I think, and now there's a statue of them out there. And because they were all black and there were three of them, they were called the Three Degrees. How does that sit with you now? If we could rewrite history, perhaps we would. But at the time, it was fantastic to have the great Brendan Batson, Laurie Cunningham, Cyril Regis, you know, a it was great to support a fantastic West Brom team, which we haven't had the privilege for many years of doing, unfortunately. If we could read write history, we probably would do that with hindsight. But I just rather remember the positives and celebrate what they achieved, not just for West Brom, but I think for the diversity of football in general and what they had to go through to be real courageous leaders. And I think there's a message in there for all of us, you know, just have a bit more courage, be less passive. And we can continue to to write today's history and tomorrow's history and be cognizant of what went on. But it's there as lessons rather than rewriting it, Barrett. Indeed it is. So I think we can discuss the needs that and the importance of white men in making changes. But I think you've both been very positive. You've both shared a journey that you've both been on. And hopefully you will inspire other people to change their thinking the way that you've changed your thinking. And it comes from awareness, but awareness in itself, as you've said so often, Kevin, isn't enough. We need awareness with action. And even if that action is simply allyship offered to people who just need support, help, guidance, which doesn't necessarily have to be mentorship, can just simply be friendship, a little bit of advice, that would be enough. But the more Kevin Roberts and Phil Ricards there are in our industry, the better our industry is. And that's the last time I'm going to be nice to either of you. But thank you for listening and see you next time. If you have enjoyed this episode and want diversity and inclusion to have as wide an audience as possible, make sure you share with your friends and colleagues and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.